Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. And welcome to Micromobility. Today, it's just me, Oliver. I have with me Martin Mignot from uh, Index Ventures. How are you doing today, Martin? I'm great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm really excited to have you here. We're going to have Martin on stage in Micromobility Berlin on October 1st. If you are interested in coming and checking this out, come and get your tickets, uh, micromobility.io. Tickets are available. If you use the code Oliver and Horace, you'll get a 30% discount. But look, let's just dig in. Martin, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. It's been a long time. You've been playing in this space really since the beginning. So take me through it. Who are you? How did Index Ventures uh, get started? And, and, and what's your involvement in micromobility so far? So there is a lot to talk about indeed. Uh, but before I get started, I just want to take a minute just to thank you uh, and Horace, obviously, for all of the hard work that you guys have been doing over the past couple of years to really evangelize the market uh, about micromobility. And also, I really build a very strong analytical framework that really helps us you know, as investors to really think about the space. I can't really think of any space that so early in its journey had already so much theory and analysis done in a, in a very strong way with a lot of data to back it up. So, you know, I really want to say it's super impressive what you guys have done. And thank you for all of the hard work. <laughs> There's mainly Horace. I tag along for the, for the ride. But uh, no, deeply appreciate it. I mean, it's been a really exciting ride. And as I said, I mean, it's, uh, we're excited to have you coming along and, and, and talking. The conference is really a, a chance for everybody to come together and, and talk about this and celebrate the space because I, I feel like we're part of a movement, right? Like it's, it's like there's investors and there are operators, et cetera. But it's exactly that. I came to the first one. And I'm very excited to come to the second one. Awesome, awesome. Well, yeah, take me through us. Like, what? How have you guys been playing in this space? What's the story of Index Ventures and your and your interest in micromobility? We got started about twenty five years ago, both in Europe and in the US. Uh, today, we we've got half of the team in in uh, in London and Geneva, and half of the team in San Francisco. But our, our specificity is that it is the same team, so you know we work really as one across the Atlantic. And which means we're all kind of equal partners and have all of the same incentives to, for our companies, regardless of where they're from, to you know really develop and, and do well. And that that's pretty unique. Uh, we really work as one integrated unit. The other thing that that's pretty unique is that we we cover both early stage and growth stage, which means that we can both kind of focus on Series A and at the same time help these companies across their life cycle. So we can invest over the life. A cycle of a company, we can invest up to 100 million into the business oh, in wow. some cases, from really the inception to the IPO. You know, and we've been focusing on on tech, uh, both you know, B2B and B2C, and and mobility as a whole, not only micro but also macro. I would say, has been a, a very very big uh, you know area of focus for us. Yeah, awesome. Well, as I was doing some research for this episode, I, I came across your previous investments and you've, you've got a lot on the, as you say, macro mobility. So it's like trains and car shares and all that sort of stuff. So talk me through, because you guys have been involved with Bird relatively early on. How did, you, how did that thinking of the macro mobility stuff kind of inform how you started to assess micro mobility as it came along? Yeah, I, I think the, the thesis originally was just that once you get GPS 
into anybody's pockets and the ability to authenticate themselves uh, and to locate themselves you know, on a map and to connect with the devices and the people around them, then suddenly the way you move is totally different. You know, you used to have to, you know, buy a vehicle and then move with it uh, or do things in a very kind of offline analog way. And then suddenly, you know, that totally changes because the world around you gets located and you can interact with it. And so that, that applied to, you know, investments like, like BlaBlaCar, for example, which was one of our early investments in the, in the transportation space, which is, you know, pulling people together from a point A to a point B. Obviously, before the internet, you had no good way to know who was going where, when. Uh, and you know, the internet was the first kind of social layer that, that enabled that connection to happen, that, you know, do the matchmaking between a driver and one or, or more passengers. So that was, that was kind of the early, you know, the early era. And then obviously, going forward with the smartphone appearing, then it became much more micro and, and you, you know, start, certainly you can start doing things with, with smaller devices uh, that you can you know, locate, unlock and ride and pay for. Obviously, you know, the payment piece is very important. That just wasn't possible before. And it opens up a whole, whole new way of, of interacting with those small vehicles. Awesome. So how long, I, I mean, you guys made an early investment in Bird. Talk me through that. How did that story happen? Yeah, so because we have we had been and I had been looking uh, among other at the transportation space in you know very broadly, as you said, you know BlaBlaCar, we're investors in CityMapper, which is a lot around kind of you know data and transit. We're investors in we're investors in Trainline, which is the largest train ticketing engine. We're investors in Drivey, which uh, you know now got acquired by GetAround, which is this peer-to-peer car rental business. I had been looking, uh, especially in, in in the space for a very long time, and as part of that, we had been meeting with a lot of companies from the bike sharing to the moped sharing. And clearly we had seen that there was a lot of pent up demand for that kind of service, that, that it was addressing a need that wasn't being met before. And that because suddenly when you had a, you know, as I said, a, a device on the street that was connected that you could unlock with your smartphone, that people would just use it because they needed that device. What we didn't like with either the bike or the moped was that we didn't feel like the product was in and of itself disruptive enough to really become super mass market and overcome the fact that, you know, it is a complicated business to, to run on an operational level. So, you know, we, we just didn't feel like it was the right, you know, that the stars were perfectly aligned for either the bikes or, or the mopeds, that they, you could take them globally. And like, for example, if you think about mopeds, you know, in Paris, it's, you know, there are a couple of companies that are doing really well. The problem with mopeds as I think some people experience in San Francisco is that there are a lot of markets where people don't really know how to drive them. You know, you need a, a license plate. You need to, sometimes you need a, some license to get to use them. You know, they go faster. They're a bit more dangerous. People are a bit scared. It's quite skewed towards men in general. We just felt it was a little bit, you know, worked really well in Paris and more Latin countries where people are used to, you know, using mopeds, but not necessarily everywhere. And so then when we looked at Berlin, you know, what we really liked about it was, you know, first, a really exceptional team, a very novel product and a product that has very low friction and, and very low bar for adoption. Is that mm. when you looked at the data of who was using these scooters, it was a lot of women, a lot of older and younger people, which you didn't really see for, say, mopeds. And we felt like that was disruptive enough so that it could really become a universal phenomenon that could work really anywhere in the globe. And I think that's been validated what, what has happened you know, since we invested, which was about, 
uh, a bit more than a year and a half ago now. Excellent. So which round were you guys in with those guys? That was the B round, I believe, which, I, I, yeah, well, they were just in Santa Monica at, at the time. So it was really early on in the, in the journey. Yeah, that's really exciting. They had been going for six months, so a bit less than six months. Yeah, yeah. So you had early data to prove out the model and all that sort of thing. You've talked about how you assessed the general space and you could tell that there was pent up demand because you'd seen the data for the bike shares or the mopeds or whatever. But how do you think about it from the total addressable market? Obviously, Horace and I are very focused on the total addressable market. We think, you know, it's very substantial, trillions of dollars, etc. Talk me through, from your perspective, how big you think it could get. I mean, with not even necessarily this model, but like, you know, this just generally the addressable market for micromobility. I wouldn't try to put a number on it beyond whatever you guys have come up with. You know, I think you mentioned like a trillion and a half for the U.S., a trillion miles in the U.S. I mean, you you know, the data is, is here and I think that that's the right, totally the right order of magnitude. I think at the end of the day, it's, there's some sciences, you know, some dark arts, you know, what is the actual addressable market, but, you know, a trillion or a trillion and a half dollars is, is good enough for, for me as an investor. So I, I wouldn't try to question that and try to go any more precise than that. I mean, I think, I think it is big, you know, and when you think about it, say you, you compare the, the UK and, and the Netherlands, for example, you know, I think uh, you look at where the Netherlands is in terms of what is the share of trips made by bicycle, which is one form of micromobility, I think it's about 30%. And they're not fully there yet. I mean, they don't really have scooters yet, and you know, it, it can still, and it's, only, it's growing. So you could get to you know, 40, 50%, uh, which I think is, is pretty much what uh, you, know, you guys came up with of, of the number of miles driven. And what you see, you know, say for companies like, like Cowboy, where, where you know, even more closely involved than Bird, because that I'm on the board there, is that you know Carboy is an uh, electric bike uh, manufacturer, uh, so it's very much own uh, kind of micro mobility, and that's re- very much being used for commuting. So you know after a year, you've still got seventy five percent of people using the bikes at least, and they use it you know multiple times a week, if not every day. So it's a very very frequent usage in terms of miles driven. If you compare that to to an Uber, for example, for the same population. I don't have you know the exact data, but it's it's one or two orders of magnitude larger. So I, I do think it is an a, an even bigger, more mass market product than say ride hailing, which is still, if you really you know look at it, is still uh, limited to travelers or, or more wealthy people or, or people who use it once a week, maybe I think more more often than not, like once a month for for most people. You know the the frequency is nowhere near compared to something that people use on a daily basis. I think that's what's very exciting is that these vehicles, especially e-bikes for the commuting space, are really replacing the car. You know, I, I can I have one anecdote. I just, so I had the first cowboy, I bought the second one. And so I, I gave this, the first cowboy back to the office you know, at Index. And one of my colleagues has been trying it, you know, so there's a rotation that it changes hand every month. And so right yeah, now, yeah. one of my colleagues who's, who's been using it and her commute by e-bike is about 50 minutes. But you know, the same thing by tube. Each way. Each way. So it's about you know, an hour 40. Yes. But because it's on an e-bike, first it's faster than, than on a moped. It's faster than on a tube. It's faster than any other option. It's mm-hmm. healthier, obviously. And because you've got the electric power, you know, the electric assist, she doesn't need to have a shower. She's not sweating. She's not tired. She just feels great. You know? So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's better on every dimension. It's faster. It's more, more pleasant. Gives you a smile. Keeps you fit. And she's just been having a blast. So even for, you know, I think that's probably the, the high end of how far people would go with it. 
But that's mm-hmm. that's a pretty big, you know, that, that makes it a pretty big addressable market if you can go all the way to, you know, 50 minutes commute time. Totally, totally. Great data point. And I love that anecdote. I think what we're finding is, uh, and actually I did an interview with the CEO of Boosted Board last week, and he was saying, look, 80% of the people who buy Boosted Boards or Boosted Scooters, we're finding they actually use, 80% of them are using it for their commute. And so really, it's interesting to hear that validated another by other manufacturers as well. I'd love to come back to Cowboy, by the way. I'd love to hear a bit more about that story. But in the meantime, I, your story with Bird, I mean, you guys invested Series B. They've obviously expanded quite heavily into Europe. I assume you had a little bit to do with that or helped out a little bit. Talk me through that. And We've also been trying. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You would have also looked at other players in that space. They were the first, obviously. But, you know, how do you compare them to other players in the space? What do you think is their differentiating advantage? To be fair, at the time we looked at them, there was no other player in the space. So, you know, we felt like that team was very special because of their experience of the mobility space, you know, from Lyft and Uber, especially, and, and other companies. And we love the fact that they were the, the original innovator, that they really, you know, they, they came up with the concept. And, you know, not only the, you know, the, the vehicle, but also, you know, the brand, you know, the, the fact that you know, Travis was very clear that he wanted a brand that was classy that was that could blend fairly easily with you know he didn't he didn't want like a clown color type product that you know would have made it more visible in the street but also would have been you know pretty maybe uglier and would have denatured the you know when you're in a city like paris or london any city you know it has a, a, a strong urban fabric and a strong identity you know adding some super bright neon color product in the street it's not necessarily like what, what green <laughs> any any color I mean, there's all sorts of colors as you've seen but i look i mean you can you can argue whether that's right or not but we liked what we liked was more the opinion in you know, the fact that they had you know they had an and they had a strong view that was different from the market and that's just one you know that's a bit of an anecdote that's not the most important one mm. but it just no, shows totally, you the yeah. principles and the vision and we thought in a space that is so early so nascent you know, betting on the innovator and the people with a strong opinion, a strong point of view, and a strong experience in execution, because it is a very operationally heavy and, and execution-heavy space, was the right the right bet. And that you know, there is always going to be fast and slow followers, no question. We kind of knew that. We probably didn't expect it to be that intense, uh, but I guess it shows you the the potential for, you know in the space. But we thought in the long run, you know, betting on the people who would define the category on a global basis was was the right bet. Yeah, absolutely. And talk me through, because, you know, obviously, Bird have really doubled down on design. How important do you think that design and their own hardware manufacturing is in this space as you've come to see it now, you know, 18 months in? I think you're starting, it is still very early. You're still in that installation phase where most people still haven't used you know, a bird or another brand don't have the app on their phone. Still, just don't really know where it is. Think it's still a toy and accessory. So I think we're, you know, at that stage, it's just more about getting it out there. Which doesn't only mean you know buying more scooters and putting them on the street. It means maintaining them, operating them, making sure they're in good condition. So I think the stakes are still fairly low, and and uh, people's thresholds are still fairly low. But I think that's going to change rapidly, and especially for the more heavy users. They're going to start developing, and you see that already in, in some of the data, that they're starting to have brand preference, which means, you know, can be the, the name, can be the look and feel, but, you know, I think even more importantly, can be the hardware. Mm-hmm. And especially if you use it on a very frequent basis, you're going to start, you know, looking for the device, you know, 
you know, will be charged, will be in good condition, and then in general has, you know, is safer, is more robust, you know, can be has better acceleration, has more sensors, can help you maneuver, and maybe has a bit more style. You know, I think there, there is a fashion element to it, which, which shouldn't be understated. No, and I, look, I totally agree with you on the fashion aspect. One of the things, I, I do drool a little bit at the new Bird 2. I think it's a beautiful, like beautifully designed scooter. I think it was, they really uh, hit the nail on the head in terms of having, you know, unibody design, all that sort of stuff. It's, yeah. Anyway, I am curious because that does lead into the, the my next question here, which is, you know, your thoughts around business model. Because as you say, there are people who have brand preference. Though I, you know, the thing I'm seeing is a lot of people are saying, look, you know, the local operator here in New Zealand is great, but it gets really expensive. You know, it gets really expensive if you're relying on individually purchased small rides and all that sort of stuff. We've seen Bird go into, hey, we're going to do leases, you know, at least in some of the markets where they've been challenged in terms of being able to get permits. I'm really curious, how do you think that this is going to develop from a shared being able to rent it on the street with your phone versus personally owned or leased micromobility? I do think that the own micromobility will be bigger as a dollar amount and as as a practice and as a frequency of use. I think, you know, because as soon as you start having commuting, the number of miles driven and the money spent is, is, is bigger. Uh, having said that, I expect that space to be more fragmented than the shared mobility one. So I do believe that because of the complexity of operating and, and the power of having one platform and the sourcing power and so on, I think there's going to be less players, even though it looks very crowded today. You know, in the long run, it's going to be you know three or four global players, maybe five you know, in, in, in the space. That, and then that space may be slightly smaller than the own space but there will be way less players. So each player will probably be, you know, very valuable and most likely more valuable than, than the people in, in the own space or at least, you know, similar. So I think it's, a, it's not only about how much dollars are going to be spent by people between buying their own scooter, their own e-bike versus renting, you know, Bird and, and Lime individually, but it's also like, you know, the competition. I mean, in the own space, there's very little drive for consolidation. I mean, it is, it is going to be a fairly fragmented space with a lot of different size and types of vehicles and brands and, and categories and so on. Because, you know, producing and retailing vehicles, especially of that small size, and they're not massively complex, it doesn't really lend itself to having one or two massive players or platforms, which is very different in the shared space. Totally. I mean, I can see in some ways there are parallels to the auto market, right? Which was there was a huge amount of experimentation in the early days of the auto market, especially in the US, there were three, four, five hundred, you know, automakers that emerged. But then you do, you end up with consolidation in their market as well. I, I, I hear you about the about the fact that there will probably be a default towards shared providers at the global level. I don't know if I agree with you, though, because I, I, in many ways it feels to me like that's a franchise business, like that these will be, and maybe that's, you know, they, we might find some common ground, but I, I, I see there being an opportunity for people operating a, sh- a scooter share in a small market, niche market, n- niche particular, you know, business models, et cetera, that will emerge. But the challenge, and this is, you know, Riley Brennan from Trucks VC who came and spoke on stage at the Capitol panel in, in California was like, tell me another company that has assets on every street corner around the world. Like there isn't anybody because building a global business like that where you own the asset is incredibly challenging. So, you know, that does lead somewhat into the question of how, you know, how are you thinking about that and how are you thinking about how Bird's handling that? Yeah, that's why the Bird platform is so interesting because this is exactly their insight, which is there are a few core markets where we want to, you know, own and operate ourselves. 
because we re, you know we think they are large enough and there's economies of scale and we can you know operational excellence is so important that we want to own it and we also want to use that to come up with the best product, get the best learning that we can then share with our network of, of franchisees. But at the end of the day, you know, the fact that it is or it may be part of a franchise model, some of the cities, doesn't mean that it's not that the economics, that most of the economics don't flow back to the master, you know, to the, the franchise owner or to the, or to the brand owner. Uh, you know, if you look at, you know, Burger King and McDonald's, you know, it's fantastic for the local franchisees. It's fantastic for the shareholder of McDonald's as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think the two are, are mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean that you know McDonald's is not a, a strong global universal brand. So I don't think the two are, are mutually mutually exclusive. No, no, that's fair. I hear you on that. I definitely hear you on that. Talk me through Cowboy. What was that investment, and why did you guys make it? Yeah, so it's it's actually you know a little bit similar in a way that it is a team that we had known for a very long time, and you know their their you know, the previous business was actually competing with one of my own investments. So, you know, I'm an investor in, uh, in Index and I'm a board member in in, um, in Deliveroo, which is the, mm-hmm. the largest European uh, food delivery logistics platform. And, and the founders of Cowboy, their previous business, was competing with Deliveroo. Unsuccessfully, it, it turns out. But, you know, the, the guys Deliveroo had always been very complimentary about them and their execution and, and the hard fight that they gave, even though they were, you know, much less funded and, and, and a little bit behind. But they did a really good job. So I had a lot of respect for them. And so I had stayed close to them, to the co-founders. And so when they came up with, with the idea, I mean, I had heard that they were working on an e-bike and, and a new e-bike brand, which I thought originally was, what the hell? You know, it was, these guys are, are internet software. I mean, even though their previous company was still you know, fairly operationally intensive. It was still very much a, a platform business and a software platform business. So I kind of, you know, I was a little bit surprised to hear that they were going into the hardware space. But I still, you know, decided to, to meet with them just out of almost courtesy, to be frank, and also because I, I rated them. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe there's something there. You know, they came to the office and, you know, they just made me try the, the prototype. It was as simple as that. And I had, you know, I had written a, a, a couple of e-bikes before, but I have to say that nothing ever close to that experience. And one of those moments mm. were very similar to the first time you used the iPhone, the first time you used Uber, or the first time you used Deliveroo, which is just this really wow moment where like, oh my God, this is going to change everything. And, and, and you know, when you invest in consumer companies, this is very much why you want, you know, what you want to experience because this is how you get people to, you know, you get free marketing because everyone who uses and tries a product then goes around and says, oh my God, that thing is incredible, which was the same with Bird, the same with a lot of the most successful companies. And yeah, I just tried a product and, and thought this, this, this is going to, you know, change the game. So yes, it was, a, it, was a, it was both the team and that incredible product. And then I started looking at, at the space and obviously through the work on, on Bird, we had a, an idea about this category and the fact, that especially with e-bikes, that you could really replace the car and sometimes mass transit for the daily commute and that you could move. And I've seen it with myself, where suddenly, now that I've been using Cowboy for a while, it's even changed the way I think about where I want to live. Because I want to live, let's say, half an hour riding time from the office. And that used to be a certain distance. But then with the e-bike that distance has been multiplied by one and a half or even two, right. which means that I can start looking at bigger places further away, uh, much better value for money, 
uh, you know, when you got kids or whatever, mm. just simply because I have a different vehicle uh, that can, you know, go faster for longer distance while keeping me fit, but also keeping me, me cool and not needing to, to have a shower when I get to the office. And, and I thought, wow, that, that changes not only, you know, the way people, you know, when you change the way people travel, you change the way people live, you know, where they live, and then you change the flow of the, of the city. And I thought that was a very, very profound thing. Mm. And the last thing about Cowboy, I would say, is that because these people came from the software industry, they really thought about it as a whole experience. Not only, it's not only a really nice looking bike, it's the integration within the hardware and the middleware and the software on the front end. They really want an experience where if you have a problem, you can chat in the app. There's sensors that kind of show you the diagnostic, very much like a Tesla, Tesla-like experience. Yep but on, on the e-bike. And I thought that was the right product for, at the right time. Yeah, awesome. I, I certainly think um, we're going to have uh, the guys from Van Moof at the conference as well. And I think that there's, you know, when we look around the space for the hardware manufacturers, there's Booster, there's you got, uh, you know, uh, Cowboy, Van Moof. I think there's a real space that's emerging for for these sort of premium, you know, really nice experiences that are fully integrated and... and um, yeah, I mean, when I look at the vehicles that I want to purchase, I, I got a boosted rev on the way, and I'm really excited about it because I'm just like, yeah, I wanted a scooter, and I wanted it to be good quality, all of those aspects. Curious from your perspective, though, because one of the things that uh, came up in the in the interview with Jeff was just, you know, hey, look, he was really lucky. They, they have lots of capital in, in Silicon Valley that kind of understands it, and they've got really great investors. How have you found the, from your perspective, looking at this consumer hardware, like it's traditionally not a market that's been super well supported by venture capital. And what was for you guys, it, did it feel like going out on a limb? What was the other investors who were in the space looking at for Cowboy as well, if I may ask? Yeah, we've, we've made a few consumer hardware investments at Index in the past. So we're investors in Sonos, for example, you know, which went public successfully. But yeah, it is not it is not a core area of expertise or focus because it is true that you know we've seen that with Sonos even when you get to massive scale the multiples that you get on hardware are just not not as good uh, and so you do you know it's very hard it's very risky it's very complex and then you don't really get rewarded so well for it if you are just a pure hardware company so in general you know we, we obviously had reservations. I mean, the, I think what really won the day with Cowboy was that we like the frequency of usage, you know, the fact that people use it, you know, every day and that they kept using it after a year is really something that people use a lot, which means that you can really develop a habit, develop a brand. We like the fact that there is a strong software component, you know, you have to use the app, you know, you get your analytics, you get your localization, you know, you can use the app to, if it gets stolen or if there's any issue with your bike, to kind of diagnostic, to do customer support. So I interact with, with the software a lot. They just came up with um, kind of a subscription model where you get maintenance, you get insurance, expert support. And it's very early days, but it's looking very promising. And, and that was that was the thesis as well, was that, you know, similar to Peloton in some ways. And when you get, a, when you, you purchase a high quality product that you use every day, probably even more than a Peloton, um, then you're all willing to, you know, subscribe to uh, added services to make sure that, you know, you really keep it in the best possible state, especially when it's your, you know, main vehicle, you know, the main way you, you go around in, in the city. And, and we've, you know, that was a bet and that was a hypothesis and the early numbers look, look pretty promising on, on that. And, and obviously, 
the value of that that recurring, you know, once you get that locking effect, similar to you know to Apple, or when, when once you get the locking effect of the hardware plus the software or subscription component, then it becomes a, a lot more interesting and, and a lot easier to value and to model in the long run because you got that that recurring revenue coming through. So it's a um, we did believe that they could come up with a with a beautiful model. And so far, the funding history has been very very easy. I mean, you know, we 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 did the, the seed and then. You know, for the Series A, it just came out, met a few people, and and very you know very quickly went to you know met with Lee Fixel at Tiger. We actually did I think the A or the B in Peloton, uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of great consumer investments. And similar to my experience, you know, fell in love with the product and and totally got the model, and kind of you know decided to lead the Series A on pretty much on the spot. So so far, it's it's been pretty smooth sailing, I have to say. Yeah, it was very funny. So I had a, an early conversation with Wind Van Moof right when they were about to do their raise as well. And their folks were like, oh, look, uh, go and check out. We're doing a crowdfunding thing in, in Amsterdam. And by the time I had uh, opened the thing, I think it took like four hours and they'd raised uh, over a million euros. I mean, it was crazy. So I hear you. There is, there's definitely funding in the space for really good quality brands. And, um, and it is, I think... You're right. There's the open question there around consumer hardware traditionally hasn't des- delivered those returns, but um, it is interesting to see how that's evolving and that the opportunity to pair it with software for folks who, who do want to be able to make those returns. Talk me through. So th- th- I'm really curious from, you know, shared, obviously, if we go back to Bird and Lime, you guys made a Series B investment. Can you let me know the total size of that round? The round at the time, I believe, was, was it 100 million at the time? Yeah, I think it was around 100 million, and obviously yeah. they've gone on to raise 300, and then another 300. Lime's done very similar amounts, 300 and 300. You know, we've seen the European operators not raise that much money. They've raised sort of 50 million euros. Like nobody's raised more than like 50 or 70 million euros. I'm really curious from your perspective. How do you see that the kind of the funding landscape, especially for shared, evolving? Like, how's it? Obviously, really early days. Really excited. Everybody kind of like poured in through to now, where you've got a couple of megas that have really emerged, and they're starting to get economies of scale in their supply chain and all that sort of stuff. You know, where do you think we're going to go? I mean, what, what does it what does it look like for the next 12, 18 months itself? I think the, the analogy that that you know you mentioned the car manufacturer story, and I think it's very similar. It's a typical innovation cycle. In the first, you know, in the, in the early days, you get a lot of excitement, a lot of companies getting started, different with different positioning, different products, get lots of funding, and then slow, you know, so it's, it's kind of the 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 Cambrian explosion, explosion. Uh, of, yeah. of the very early days, and then you get, you know, that, that that's the, the the inflated expectation, that's the peak, and then then you go through the kind of the through of disillusionment, and that was, I guess, kind of last year in the first winter. Where you know churn rates were very high on 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 the hardware and and, they, and we realized there was a lot of seasonality and then you know then these companies some didn't and and uh, the strong one survived and went through it and then changed their pricing changed their operations really tightened things up and and the economics you know have started to look a lot better with with any any new device so I think we are we are slowly in that in that growing phase. With fewer players, better capitalized, operating better, with stronger relationship with the cities, I think that's extremely important. Paris is a very interesting example where, where it was a purely free market, which you know is interesting for that it happens in France. Uh, where you know, any- <laughs> I, I I was gonna ask, <laughs> it strikes me as crazy, crazy. It is interesting. I mean, I would never have expected, you know, being French myself. I, I you know, would never say, I would never. 
I didn't think I would ever see the day where France would be the most free market country on, on any on any topic. But clearly, you know, you have to give massive amount of credit to the, the city authorities in, in Paris who are massive believers in in bikes, in micromobility in general, and in, in really trying incredibly hard to get you know the, the city's dependency on the car to end and to put the cars where they should be, which is outside of the cities and, and not, not inside. So massive amount of credit and, and they really let a lot of operators come in. Uh, obviously at some point there were 12 or 13 of them and people say, oh, that, that's crazy. And you know the, the beauty with the market is that it is very, you know, it, there's a lot of self-regulation happening and very, you know, clearly a lot of operators realize it didn't make sense. It wasn't economic that they couldn't compete, that some people were just better capitalized, more efficient, and then, you know, very quickly dropped to, you know, four or five real, real players. You know, with obviously, you know, the, the, the city hall putting some constraint it was clearly a good thing. But those two factors together just meant that very quickly the market kind of rationalized. I think that's a good, looking at what happened in Paris is a good way to look at the overall environment and the overall ecosystem because it shows like when you let things happen what does happen it's a very good you know almost laboratory where, where you can analyze it and that's exactly what happened in Paris you had a lot of explosion of, of, of operators and it got reduced to a few better managed better operated that consumers liked more that the city liked more because they had a few people they could deal with it. they knew that they had the resources to you know when the city asked you to have like a a parking functionality in the app, then you have the resources to roll that out very quickly. You are responsive. And so I think that's the model going forward is a few very well capitalized platform. And then I do think you know, there has been, you know, pricing wise, it's starting too low for the, the churn rate. Then it went up. And today it is fairly high, I, I would say, you know, even though people are still using it a lot because it solves a real problem. My expectation is that over time, as the quality of the hardware improves a lot and the quality of the operation improves a lot and competition recedes, as we've discussed, the pricing should be able to calm down and, and, and again, make it a, a very, very mass market product in the long run. But it is still very early days. You know, it is two, two, you know, it's getting on three years, which is really peanuts for a, new, a whole new industry and a whole new operating model. So people have to be patient. I think you know, the, the press loves to you know, write stories and, and, uh, and get excited when it's early days and get, you know, get all gloomy and, and predict doom for everything when, when it's the second phase. But if you take a much longer term view, if you think, where is it going to be? It's going to be much, much bigger than where it is today. Yeah, completely. I, I hear you on that for sure. Really curious. So price is coming down. That that seems like an interesting assertion to make. I've had similar conversations with other operators who are who are pretty adamant. They're like, look, long term, this is going to, you know, this this will end up being very cost competitive, either with owned micromobility for, for certain trips in terms of costing. But they also are like, look, we may end up in a situation where city authorities actually want to come in and say to say to us in the same way that they've done with trains and other public transport infrastructure, actually, this should be owned by the city or this should be owned by the state and then it's p- provided to operators. Curious about you whether or not you think the market will evolve to that or whether or not you think it will just end up staying with operators with their own... As the market matures, you know, we're talking three, four, five, six years from now. I hope not. You know, I, I don't think the state or the city authorities could make a good job at 
operating such a service, which is highly innovative, changing very rapidly. I, you know, I think competition and private ownership is, is the way forward if you want to keep seeing. I mean, the pace of innovation in the space has been absolutely tremendous. You know, both obviously on the vehicle side, which is the most visible, but also on the operation side. We see the progress that have been made in Paris over six months. It's just mind-blowing, you know, the speed at which this company can adapt and react and how nimble they are. I mean, there are very few companies, even large companies, but even more so have public authorities that could do that. I mean, there's just, there's just no way. So I really don't think that would be the right model. Will the, the theories want to subsidize the services at some point? Maybe. I mean, we obviously never you know, bet on that. And, uh, and, and, and that's clearly not what we're going to You want to give us free money? For. But it would, I mean, if you, think, if you think of the way that they've been subsidizing, you know, either public transport or even, you know, private transport in many ways, you know, it wouldn't be unheard of. But I think the, the, the only thing that, that we, we ask to the cities and that, that, that we really wish for is just better infrastructure. So it's one is clear rules. And I think there needs to be rules, no, no question. There is, as anything, it does have side effects, most of them very positive, but some negative. And, and it's, it's the role of the public authorities to regulate markets so that the you know, negative externalities get addressed and get corrected and get priced in. I think that's totally fair, you know, whether it's parking or, or kind of dangerous driving. And, and, and I mean, those are the two, the two main things. But you know, I think the main thing that, that we ask is, is beyond regulation is just infrastructure. Like, you know, if you build cycle lane, and it's funny, like the, the deputy mayor of Paris for transport over the weekend tweeted something which I thought was, was sounds very obvious, but actually, you know, it, it actually isn't. And it's quite insightful and shows you how much they get it. It's like, if you, he said, if you build cycle lanes, you are going to get cyclists. If you build roads, you're going to get cars. And I think that's, that's exactly the point. I mean, you get a lot of people saying, oh, there's a lot of congestion, we need more roads. But it, create, it just creates induced, induced demand. All you get is more cars. While if you reduce the road space and you build more cycle lanes, you will get more people cycling and using micromobility. And Paris totally get it. And most cities in the world are starting to get it. I mean, and actually most of them, if not all of them, talk a, a good game. Not all of them actually, you know, walk the walk. But eventually that's going to be, people on, on Twitter, they see, you know, they, they see videos and photos of, of intersection in the Netherlands and how people go to work there and their kids go to school on their bike. And, and they say, why, why can't we have this? What's different there? Mm. There's nothing different. There. It's a shitty weather. There's, it, it, there's nothing special. It's just, that's it was just a political choice. Mm. And, uh, and I think people are going to ask for it in every city because they just see it's better quality of life. Well, I 100% agree with you. Yeah, we've been looking at similar things in New Zealand and calling and saying, look, one of the things we've really noticed is there's all of a sudden this explosion in electric bikes and scooters and the infrastructure plans that we had for cycleways were, you know, there was a, we, we had a master plan, but it was going to take 20 years to build. And we're like, no, you need to build it in like eight uh, you know, five to eight years. You, you, you're just to handle the growth, and uh, that's a very different conversation to have with the government than, uh, you know, hey, if you build if you build some cycleways, maybe people will cycle. You know, it's like no, no, no. This is explosion in these vehicles. You need to work out how to to manage them, which I think is really exciting. Hey, really curious. What's um uh, as we finish up? What are you looking for in the micromobility space these days? If you were to pick anything, what do you find exciting? What do you find interesting? You're always looking at at the space. I think we have. 
quite a lot of investments in mobility in general and in micro specifically we've got both an e-bike and an e-scooter company so one shared one own so we feel like we've got a good coverage and, and we've invested significant amount in the space so for now i think we're just more looking at how these companies develop how there's you know how does the whole space is, is maturing there are still, you know, there, there could still be new new concepts. I mean, uh, we see a lot more of like the, the rent. There's a lot around leasing and rentals and so in between owned and fully owned and fully shared. So that could be a third a third way that, that is quite interesting. But I think for now, we, we feel like we've made, you know, big bets, early bets into a, a, a massive space that, that's, you know, is, is going to keep on growing very fast, which does have also, you know, what, what I'm very happy about is have a big, social impact and, and and we think you know we are very happy to support something that we believe is going to make the world a better place i mean i think that it may sound a little bit silly but but you know we truly believe that and i think for now we, we feel like we've, we've got two great companies in the space if you know if anything you know new a new vehicle a new model comes along you know we, i hopefully we will see it early enough and we're totally open to it but uh, i think for now we just want to support you know, our portfolio companies to keep growing. I hear you. I am really curious, how would you think about the infrastructure question? Because that's certainly one that comes up in every city that I talk to. You know, like everybody I talk to is like, man, the infrastructure isn't there. And I've been trying. I've been thinking about a lot about what are the investments that you could make in that space. And I'm curious if you think, you know, how are you thinking through that? Um, is there anything in that space that you think is interesting? Yeah, totally. It's, it's better. I've been thinking about the same thing, like how can we use private investment to accelerate the infrastructure rollout? I mean, I, I haven't really found anything, to be perfectly honest, that where I thought that that could really make a big difference. I mean, obviously the whole parking situation is, is a big one, but you know, how can you create a business around turning private parking space into into more, more road space for micromobility? At the end of the day, the reality is and I've been trying, you know, even myself to kind of get more involved in, in politics. I mean, at the end of the day, it is, it is public space and you need the political will to change its use. And it's an arbitrage between different interests. You know, you're always going to have taxi drivers and white van drivers wanting more road space. And you're going to have to, at the end of the day, tell them, look, that's not where the world is going. You know, we're sorry. And motorists wanting more more space for their cars. You're going to have to say, not in city centers, and that's not really a business decision because for them, mm. you know, they they will people who want to drive their own cars in central London, they will have a harder time, and they need to have a harder time, and that's not really something. That's not really a business question. It is a political question where you have to be able and willing to take the hard decisions, and that's what if you look at the the amount of abuse that uh, Anne Hidalgo, the, the mayor of Paris has taken on social media and, and in public in general, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, the, the amount of abuse that she had to go through was incredible. But she's, because she had the will and the vision, she's managed to power through and kudos to her. Yeah, it is really interesting. I, I, I think about exactly the same thing. And I think, you know, I've kind of got to the place of, no, it's all about politics, really. Like at the, at the end of the day, especially around infrastructure decisions, is oftentimes public investment, right? And what are the opportunities that I think people who are advocates in this space, or how, how can we be more involved? And yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to get uh, more people who, who have been very active and, and successful in the space of accelerating that advocacy 
onto the podcast because I actually think that's where we <laughs> that's the the sort of the evolution in some ways of where we where we need to take the movement but I look man this is this has been such an interesting interview I really really appreciate your time is there anything anything at all uh, for folks who want to find out a bit more about you how can they do that yeah this is just hit me on Twitter as I guess maybe you can tell I'm a lot of it is going to be around mobility, micro, macro, transportation, how changing cities. That's a little bit my, my obsession right now. So, you know, but I guess people, your listeners will be okay with that, I hope. Uh, so, you know, at Martin Mino on Twitter and love to have conversations about this very particular topic. Yeah, awesome, man. Hey, look, well, for the Kiwis, you are called Martin Mignot. So uh, that should hopefully give you give a give a little bit of a, a clue as to how to spell uh, Martin's last name. Martin, pleasure to have you on. Really excited to have you with us in Berlin, and really looking forward to hopefully having you on later on in the future. Thank you so much. I had a great time, and really looking forward to Berlin. It's going to be fun. Cheers. Thank you.